summarily mess Artists like their boots are torn to shreds The government will spoil your hopes and dreams By offering a useless retraining scheme There's such amazing talent, why can't you see That the government has decimated the industry And now the years of hard work have been thrown away Just get a real job Hello, hello, and welcome back to Just Get A Real Job Podcast. It's been a few weeks. I'm, of course, your host, Jamie McKinley, and thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this podcast if you're a new listener. We have a brilliant episode in store for you today. I'm recording this week's episode from my new flat in Glasgow. I have officially moved to Glasgow. I'm officially a resident of Glasgow. So I'm in my new sort of podcast studio recording place. I've got a new little office now. And this is where I'm going to be doing the podcast, which is very exciting. It's a bit smaller than the last place, so it's, it's quite a nice little space to do it in. So I think it's going to be a good place to record episodes. So I'm excited about that. As I said in the last episode, I'm currently working on a production as a script editor's which is very, very full on hours. Also, as I just said, I've moved flat recently as well, so I've not had a lot of time to record or focus on this podcast, and I don't want the quality to suffer as a result of that, so we're sort of just going to put episodes out when we sort of have time for the next few months instead of doing it weekly and doing it very consistently like we've been doing for the last two years. On that note, actually, speaking of two years, last week we celebrated our two-year anniversary of Just Get A Real Job. It might have been the week before, actually, but anyway, a few weeks ago, we celebrated two years of doing this podcast. So, yeah, thank you to everyone that sort of supported us over the last two years. It's been an incredible journey and something I never thought we would sort of... When I started this, I didn't think it would grow into become what it's become... And a massive shout out to our brilliant editor and chief Elliot Mitchell for for helping us achieve that. And mostly thank you to the brilliant guests we have every week. And thank you to you, the listener, for for tuning in and supporting us and for making this wonderful thing what it is. I notice when I don't have the time to do this as regularly how much I love it and how much I miss it. So I can't wait to sort of be doing this more consistently again. But for now, we're just going to put out the odd episode and it'll still be good. And speaking of good episodes, this week's episode is an absolute cracker. I've been trying to organise this one for over a year, actually. Me and this week's guest have been trying to schedule this. We finally found time to sit down and record it about a month and a half ago and it didn't disappoint. But joining us on the podcast this week, is the brilliantly talented Maltese director, Andre Ajuz. And I'm very sorry to Andre if I've said his surname wrong. He did explain to me how to say it at the time of the recording, and I've totally forgotten. I'm terrible with surnames. I get them wrong all the time on this podcast. If I've said it correctly, please ignore this apology. If I've said it wrong, then please accept my apology. But what I will say to smooth over if I've said it wrong is, you had one of the best accents we have ever had on this podcast. So to all you listening, you're going to love Andre's voice. It was a brilliant voice. We've had some good accents on this podcast, so that is a, a, a massive compliment for me. We've had a lot of Irish guests on this podcast, and they have a fine accent. But this Maltese accent was lovely. It's going to make for a great listen, as well as all the brilliant advice and insights into theatre and directing Andre offered throughout this episode. But without further ado, this is episode 97 of Just Get A Real Job. Thank you for listening, as always, and I hope you enjoy. Andre, how are you doing? Nice to nice to meet you. I got your name right there, yeah? Yes, you got my name good. right. Good, good, good. <laughs> I'm glad. How are you? How are you getting on? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's, oh, it's been, a pleasure. We've been messaging back and forth trying to find a slot that we can both do this. And I'm happy to be, be on your show. Been a while. It's been nearly... So I was saying to you just before we started recording, I came to see a play you directed, Edinburgh Fringe in 2021. And we were sort of discussing you coming on since then, so skip mm. ahead about, you know, 
a long time, 14 months later, we'd, we'd made it happen. So it's great to finally have you on. Thank you. As long as we made it happen, that's that's the important part. Yeah, of course. Well, before we sort of get into it, do you want to quickly introduce yourself to the listeners like, a bit about what you do and like obviously what you're up to at the moment, your your job and stuff, etc. Your title, a better way of saying it. Cool. So my name is Andre. And I'm an Edinburgh-based theatre director and theatre maker. I come from Malta and I started out as an actor first and I trained in Malta and then I trained in, in the UK for a bit. I did an acting course in the UK and then I studied in Denmark for a bit and then I did a couple of courses in, in Budapest as well. And then I did an undergraduate in theatre studies. And right after, as soon as I finished my undergrad, I said, you know what, I've actually, I've always wanted to try my hand at directing. And in 2017, I approached a theatre company who I had worked for as an actor, and I proposed a play called Skylight by David Hare. And that's where it started off. And I, I said, you know what, I'll, I, I could enjoy directing and this is exactly what I'd want to be continue doing. Or I could just hate it and just be like, I'll just come back to acting. But I loved it. I loved the playfulness and the freedom it gave me to really play in the room and really experiment with the actors. And I always tried to keep it in my head that I enjoy directing the way I used to enjoy being directed as an actor. So that's something that I've always, I've always tried to keep as a true line throughout my work. Then I directed for the National Theatre of Malta. I directed for the National Philharmonic Orchestra. And I did dramaturgy for the National Dance Company in Malta. But I always felt that I wanted to go away and just have some time to work on myself and work on my craft and the way I direct and what type of director I can be. And that's how I found my way to Edinburgh Napier and the two-year course and particularly being mentored by Mark Thompson. That was that was exactly the kind of space and environment that I was looking for, where you don't have dates on a poster, you just have space and you have actors and you have tasks. And, and that's what I I wanted I wanted that time to really experiment and really see what are the key things that I want to focus on as a director yeah that's where it all started yeah and well I mean there's lots to unpack there lots for us to talk mm. about talk about tonight of course but usually we kick the podcast off by sort of asking people about their earliest creative memories how their earliest sort of memory of how they started out as a youngster in getting into the industry and getting into that sort of mm. mindset and obviously you're talking about being an actor and stuff there so I take it when you were a child growing up in Malta were you were you thinking about were you always creative or were you like I want to be an actor or, or is it sort of did it start somewhere do you have a, an early memory of that time I think the earliest memory I mean I could say two memories there's an early memory of me being creative and then the early memory of me having the first sign that maybe theatre was the line that I was going to continue developing in. I think my early memory is playing with plasticine. To me, playing with plasticine was, as a child, you know, there's there's freedom there. There's no restriction. You can play and you can experiment with this piece of plasticine. And it's that kind of, that childish freedom, that playfulness that I try to bring into a rehearsal room. So I carry a small tub of plasticine still with me. And in the rehearsal room, when I'm thinking, when, when I'm just playing around with an idea, I usually take out the plasticine and I keep on playing with the plasticine. Because that smell, it triggers something. It triggers 
that kind of childhood childhood feeling of okay actually what could we do with this how can we play Mm -hmm. how can we work this scene how can we have fun with this scene wow so that's something that i i keep with me i think my earliest creative memory that showed that i was i was enjoying theater was i was in in a pre-grade performance i think i must have been like six or seven and we were putting on the lion king and i was playing timon and my mum was in the audience and she realized how comfortable i was looking on stage because my costume which was which my grandma made for me she put in a, a tail and i remember my mum saying that i i I took the tail during one of the songs and I just started swinging the tail and she said you looked so comfortable that that then I thought you'd start kind of there's in Malta you start it's kind of a performing art school so you'll start a performing art school and that would usually you'll have classes in dance and singing and in acting so yeah so that's where it all kind of started. But no thank you for both the I, do, I want to quickly go back to the Play-Doh stuff because that's so interesting yeah. that you still use that now. I love that yeah. idea of that because I've had that answer on this a few times because obviously we've done quite a lot of interviews now and quite a lot of people have said, oh, I remember when I was young, I played with Lego or Play-Doh or something and that was, because that is creative and it, you don't, we, obviously as a child, you're not thinking about it being creative, but it is. And like, I think there's this idea and I, I find this now in my job as a script editor that I don't always allow myself to be creative because you're under pressure, you've got to deliver something, you've got to get a script from and sometimes all you need to do is, is access your inner child and be playful and think and just make it fun and i think so the idea that you have play-doh i love that so uh, talk us through this so you're in a rehearsal for example and you just you just sometimes think about the play-doh or do you actually have the play-doh with you no no i carry a i carry play-doh with me so right now right now i'm on a on a shade of green play-doh and i'll usually if there's a, a scene where we're stuck or there's something sticky that would be the moment where I'll use the Play-Doh and just bring it out and while I'm thinking play with the Play-Doh. So the thing is, it's quite interesting because recently I read that the director, James Gunn, the one who directed Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he does a similar thing with Play-Doh where he carries whole boxes of Play-Doh and when an actor's done, he, he's done a scene really, really well, he rewards people with the Play-Doh. <laughs> So it's interesting how Play-Doh, this really simple thing, can really, you know, open up, as you're saying, the, our, our thought process. Yeah. And do you, you said you're on light green just now. Does the colour change per project or does it just depend what you have? Like, it's not that in deep. No, I, no it's not <laughs> that. It's not that deep. I think it's more as long as it's, I can still kind of change and, and change the shapes. Because I'm sure, you know, at a point Play-Doh becomes really, really tough. No, it doesn't change according to a project. It just, <laughs> it's just the shade I'm on at the moment. I just, I just thought I'd check, but no, that's fair. That, that's classic. Thank you for answering. And sort of touched on Malta there briefly, mm-hmm. and how when you lived there, when you grew up there, you you went, you'd go to like you have the option of performing art schools and things. But like my next sort of question is about where you're from, and and I love asking this question to people because everyone's from so many interesting places. What we've had on this podcast, and like I'm really interested in speaking to you as somebody that's not from because obviously a lot of our guests tend to be from the UK just by the mm-hmm. nature by the nature of that sort of being where I live and like the people I sort of know more, but. Growing up in Malta, like, what was that like for you and how has that influenced you as a creative person? Like, even now, living in somewhere like Scotland, I imagine you must go back to your identity as, as a Malt- 
you know, being from Malta. And as someone who's Maltese, like, how do you, how, I imagine that's a big part of your identity as a creative now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I grew up, I lived in Malta, so I lived in Malta, but there's a sister island called Gozo. And my grandparents lived there and we would go over on the weekends and it's a much calmer and much quieter. It was back then. It's now uh, become a bit more developed in terms of new buildings and tourist attractions. But obviously that's that's always part of the identity and i think it's that mediterranean aspect it always finds its way into the work that you're doing or sometimes i use it as a starting point so for example the last the last play that i just directed for play by pint the, so the, the play was called the impromptu at or more and when we we took it on tour to the gaiety and it becomes the impromptu at the gaiety and I remember earlier on, I started myself and the playwright Morna Pearson, we started talking about the play. And when I started to research the play, one of the, the, the articles about the play spoke about how this play was a love letter from Moliere, the playwright, to his acting troupe. And the article spoke how, about how this play was about, about the community, about a, a community coming together and watching a play, chatting about the play, having a drink, and then going away. And to me, it felt like that's exactly what happens at, at Play Pie Pint. There's a community that comes together, that meets to have a pie, a pint, and watch a play, and then speak about the play, and then go upstairs to the bar and continue speaking about the play. So that idea of the community feeling to me, to me, community is we have a lot of village feasts in Malta and village feasts are usually the highlight of the village for the whole year. The the village would have ornate statues out in the road and we'd also have these festoons. So we'd have festoons all around the village to show that something important is happening. And when I started directing Impromptu and I sat down with the set designer, I used references of village feasts from Malta. And I spoke about the importance of the festoon because it feels that that is the feeling of community for me. And and growing up, that was that was a highlight when the village feast is coming around. You know you're gonna meet people. Yeah. You know something's happening. So that's an that's an example of how that identity can really influence the work. So then, for example, each village feast to continue on this idea uh, on on this example, each village feast usually has a brass band. So for example, to continue within Impromptu, then the play opened with a brass band playing. Because it kept the idea of a a community feeling and something's happening, something's going on, and then the play starts. That's, I think, an example of how where I'm from really affects my my creativity and my my creative identity. Yeah, thank you. That's a brilliant answer. A lot of the time when I ask people that, they they do, they sort of answer it, but they don't, like, that's the best, like, example Mm. of, like, it's like you've taken the question and you'd actually given me like a breakdown of like exactly how it's influenced, um, which is really interesting. So thank you for answering. I just thought on the cuff question, I, I didn't yeah. send you this one ahead, but like what's the sort of industry like in, in Malta? Like, because you said you worked for the National there and stuff. Obviously, you now work in Scotland at the moment. You live here and stuff. But mm. what is the sort of theatre industry like in Malta or the creative industries in general? Do they have a big creative industries there? Is it obviously is it not going to be, I imagine, as big as somewhere, somewhere like the UK? But like, mm. if this, this, what sort of things are happening over there? So we're in Malta. 
Gibraltar were a population of 500,000. So that maybe can give kind of a bit of an idea mm. of how big how big we are. The creative industries there is, is quite a young sector. It's quite a young upcoming sector. The thing was that for a good amount of time, theatre was not seen as a viable occupation. So it was often sometimes discouraged that you would kind of go into freelancing within theatre because it was tricky. The, the misconception was that it was tricky that people, that you would make enough money to live and to, to raise a family. So it was something that through time, my generation specifically and the generation before ours, we tried to break that down and make theatre as viable an opportunity. So it's tricky because you're always, as a freelancer, you're always looking at what's my next job, what's my what's what's my next gig and in Malta it's it's even more because it's it's a smaller it's a smaller sector so you know we have about four or five theatres that are considered the main stages in Malta and they're they're all housed within our capital city so it's a bit like you have to really be strategic when you're proposing a play or coming forward it has to be tailored to the space it has to be tailored to the programme and Mm. I think think coming over to the UK that was because in Malta I had that experience then coming over it really allowed me to have that within kind of my understanding on how do I pitch this play and how does this play fit within this season mm. or within this theatre yeah that's really interesting yeah so you've you've found that you're actually quite good from having to do that so much when you in Malta before you moved over that you you're really a lot better than maybe some people are or maybe not better is the right word Ex- more experienced in te- how to pitch to get something made or like the sort of knowing how to tailor your work for a program or a venue etc I wouldn't say better believe yeah. me if you saw me if you saw me the <laughs> night the night before a, a pitch experience you know, will go with that that's what i meant yeah or yeah or maybe kind of an understanding because in malta we have a, a host of different theater you could direct in a in a fully baroque theater to a black box to an in the round to an outside theater and then there are festivals we have we have a number of festivals we have a children's festival we have a, an international festival so because we i feel like we have a number of these of a different variety you get that mindset to think about okay how how is this how is this production going to fit in a baroque theater mm. and not going to fit outside in an outside theater and because i think i had that chance to both act in those theaters as an actor and then direct in those theaters as a director it gave me that understanding of that logic behind why this play would fit for this company or this season and why it wouldn't for the other for example mm. no it's really interesting as well that's the, I like the sort of idea that like just I love when people talk on this podcast about like where people draw experiences from as well and how you like just mm. lear- learning from everything because that's obviously what you do in this industry and it's interesting to hear about I mean I'll ask you about, I'll probably ask you more about Malta as we go yeah. on etc and it's really interesting to, to ask about it and it's lovely but the, my sort of question now well I get it kind of actually does link to Malta obviously but like do you have a favourite word or phrase from Malta that you love is there a word or something in, in your language that you would share that and you tell us what it means in english type thing hmm. so there's a the, i have a funny word yeah. i have a funny a word which means bucket and so the this funny word is in maltese that would be 
barmil. But from where I'm from, from Gozo, that would be because we we have a dialect there. The the dialect would be bormoil. So in Maltese it's barmil, but in in Godzitin it's bormoil. And that means bucket. It means bucket. Yeah. <laughs> No, thank you. No, listen, you're the first Maltese person I've ever had on this podcast, so definitely a first as well. So it's, it's, it's lovely. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, the funny one. I do have another one, but I think we, we might touch on it later on. So I'll leave it, I'll leave it yeah. for later on. And, and also, a bit cheeky, I'm going to ask for an extra one, but since you'd lived in Scotland for, for three years, what do you have, is there any Scottish words that you'd, you'd learned when you moved here that you really like the sound of? Mm, that's a good one. I particularly really like... When when I hear words like canny. Canny's a good one, isn't it? That's a good one. And I remember when I first heard it and I understood that means kind of I was like, that's a that's a cool word. It's a cool word. I also like when people get off the bus and they say ta. <laughs> yeah. I, I it, that's really cool. And people sign off some people sign off emails with ta and And I'm cheers like, and stuff like that, yeah. And cheers. Yeah. 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 I also hear the word doner kebab. So in Malta we don't say doner kebab. In Malta we say doner kebab. When we moved here and I said, ah okay, so it's doner kebab and then it made total sense that that's the spelling of the word. So the Maltese are pronouncing doner. M- I imagine kebabs in Malta are much better for you than they are here though. Definitely. So we we have a lot of Turkish kebab shops in Malta. So yes, they are quite they are better, but there there are some good ones in Scotland as well. Just can probably eating in eating in a different way. I imagine in Malta people don't eat them really drunk at three a.m. on the way home from a night out either. It's probably got a bit more class. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Oh, they're enough. the ones. They're the ones that are usually open at that time. So in Malta, the ones open at that time would usually be kebab shops and donut shops. Okay. Because donuts are a big thing in wow. Malta. I think Scotland would probably die overnight if there was donut shops available to people at 3am, but... Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, after you've had a few drinks, you'll, you'll all go and get and get donuts. Yeah. Oh, that is class. Um, making, yeah. me a, making me want a donut now. I might have to get one after this interview. <laughs> and it's like big donuts. So it's like a big donut, jam donut, and a big chocolate donut. Oh, man. So... That's really good. And you have the lovely Mediterranean Sea as well, so I'm very jealous of that. Well, to, to move on into sort of your journey after, so obviously mm. you decide, you sort of mentioned at the start, you decide you wanted to try directing, you're doing it mm. more like, sort of just, you kind of touched on it slightly, but let's go back to the sort of moment you decided yeah. you were going to move to Edinburgh and study your NFA in directing. How, how did that come about? What, what was it about Scotland in particular, Edinburgh, Napier, that you thought, I really want to go and try that course? So I had come over as an actor in 2015 and I performed at the Edinburgh Fringe. I was very impressed by the the new writing scene that was in, in Scotland. And I still remember going to watch plays and for someone, so that was in 2015, that was the first time that I, I, I went to perform abroad. And for someone at that point in their development it was quite eye-opening to see new work, work which was at times riskier in terms of subject matter and in terms of how provocative it can be for an audience and how thought-provoking it can be. And so I always kept on following the development of work in Scotland. And then when it came to my master's, I remember there was a period of time where... So directing in Europe is, is, is tricky because some countries don't see the director as a director. Some countries see a director as a dramaturg or see a director as not a 
job that, for example, not a, that you would need training for. So I remember I started having a look at courses and we had come over in 2017. That summer we had come over because I had been telling my, my parents and my girlfriend so much about the Edinburgh Fringe. I told them we need to go. Let's, let's <laughs> just go and visit the Fringe. And in 2017, we came over and I wasn't sure if I was going to have the same feeling that I had in 2015 about the city, about the place. And when I came here, I, I really realized just how much I enjoy being in Edinburgh. And, and I'm the kind of person who is, you know, I, I'm affected very much by my immediate environment. I remember I had looked around to see if there were any directing courses and the MFA at Edinburgh Napier was the first one that popped up and the more I read about you know that Mark was Mark's there and the fact that what really intrigued me about the course was the fact that it was two years but also the fact that it runs parallel to a, a playwriting MFA so I realized that I would be I would be sitting into classes with the playwrights mm. and I thought that was something that was exactly what I wanted I wanted to have that dramaturgical understanding how do we look at the play not just as a play, how do we break it down structurally? How do we look at the characters and their function? How do we look at a narrative? And yeah, that's why the ultimately it came down once I got accepted to Edinburgh Napier. That was where I that was where I wanted to go. Yeah. And talk us briefly, just just kind of quickly, like at Edinburgh Napier and stuff. Like what was your what's the best thing about the course for you? Like what is there some moment that stands out? To me, what what I really loved about the course was the space we're given so it's mostly assigned we're assigned a task but then we're we'll have someone like mark look over our work and we'll have tutorials with him just to speak about how we're thinking of staging this or what we're thinking of doing with it and then mark gives you recommendations and gives you things to really look out for and it was great because it was that space that I was looking for, that you enter into the room and you have a task at hand. Say, for example, you have to direct a 30-minute piece from a contemporary play. And you work through it with the actors. And then Mark comes in and observes the rehearsal. And then afterwards, you have time to just speak with him. And that's exactly what I was looking for because... You learn by doing, you learn by making choices and making right choices or wrong choices. But then it's a safe environment. It's, a, it's enough of a safe environment where you learn from your wrong choices and you also understand why that was the right choice to do. So it's this kind of very open learning process, which I really, I really enjoyed. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. And of course, when you did, were studied at Edinburgh Napier, it was sort of during the COVID time the last year, right, as well, which is a nightmare. Obviously, I was saying that to you before we started, like I did my master's there at the same, and, and screenwriting, and it was a similar thing. But like I saw, and it was a COVID play, but it still worked, you know, still were able to mm. do it. But I saw Saving Mr. Ultimate last year, was mentioned at the start, which was obviously your directorial debut at the Edinburgh Fringe. And I remember that play quite a lot because... The day I got the job I'm in now at STV, the day I started my training, I got offered the training ship. I was literally on my way to see your play 
and I got this phone call and it was amazing but I just wanted to phone my family and friends and share this like because I'd been working towards that moment for a long time but I had to also go and see the play first so <laughs> I, I was loving the play but I remember I just had this sort of I just remember being like as soon as this finishes I just can't wait to tell everyone so I was in this weird headspace where I was in a, such a surreal place so I always just remember the play because of that reason <laughs> as well like just me being in such a weird headspace of like I feel like I'm not in the real world because this like, amazing things happen but like I'm also in this play and I've got to stay calm and yeah I've been waiting to tell this anecdote since we discussed you coming on the podcast a year ago but it's lovely <laughs> to hear that 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 play has has become yeah. this kind of this this milestone no I remember yeah it was tricky it was tricky directing during during covid because for half of my second year I was still in Malta because things were still in flux so I only came back in January so I went for a bit and then I came back in January 2021 so in January 2021 December 2021 that's when when I came in I came back and then we were back in a rehearsal room beginning must have been beginning of February and yeah it was very odd because we we needed to keep distance we needed to wear masks we needed to and that kind of it doesn't allow you that flexibility doesn't allow you that playfulness to be with people because there's and this is not me being against masks or anything of the sort no of course it's difficult circumstances of course it's very difficult circumstances just made it it just made it trickier but also i think i'm sort of grateful that i passed through that process and because loads of people tell me oh you you did your course during the covid the covid years but it, it feels like it made me more flexible and more adaptive to the situation so it's a bit like depending what the situation is then that that's what we'll do and it's no use kind of overthinking about things that are out of our hands you just have to you have to adapt i feel that's kind of a theme tonight with you because you obviously mentioned earlier about in malta it's you know maybe a bit harder sometimes to get plays on because there's only these five theaters in the same place and how you but instead of you know you'd use that when you've been here and you use the experience of that to, as a positive and again with the covid stuff you're using it as a positive which i think is mm. a great thing for people listening to here especially anyone who's younger and maybe wants to get into being a director and direct plays in theater because as you say it is one of those jobs where you have to be adaptive and that you can't control things out of your own you know out of your control so you, you get you kind of just have to get on with it really which is what yeah. you, you know which is obviously what you guys did with saving mr ultimate so no it's just a, a lovely answer Hello, it's JB here. You may have heard this advert several times before, but if not, this is basically just me taking a minute to remind you guys that if you're enjoying the podcast, there are a number of things you can do to help us keep growing. Now, as many of you might be aware, the podcasting landscape is incredibly saturated and, I mean, there's lots of podcasts, we all love podcasts, but it's very difficult for independent podcasts like us to sometimes break through and to be noticed. So doing things like sharing us on social media, word of mouth and just telling friends and family to listen or even leaving us a little five-star review on places like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts go so far in helping us to keep growing. Me and Elliot adore this podcast. We love making this podcast. So if you're able to help in any way by doing something like that, we'd be incredibly grateful, not just for our podcast, but if you love any independent podcasts, please try and give them a wee share or give them a review because it, it goes so far. Another thing you can do if you enjoy the podcast as well, and we appreciate that this is a very difficult time, but if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us, you can donate as little or as much as you like to our Patreon page, and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash job, or you can click the link in the show notes. Anything you can afford, we are very grateful for. Thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the rest of today's episode. <laughs> 
obviously we only have you know we'd, uh, we've been speaking for 35 minutes there's so much stuff I'd love to talk about with you but mm. I think it might be useful to sort of skip ahead a little bit to when you'd graduated from the course and obviously you'd worked a lot since but what, what when you first graduated what were your sort of initial thoughts because it's quite a scary time did you find it quite easy to find work did it take you a bit to get on your feet like where were you at then so it was a, it was a bit of a tricky time because lots of theatres and lots of theatre companies were coming back but they weren't the you know there was a bit a period of time where you know our audience is going to return what can we stage what can we do so as soon as i graduated that was a point where it felt like covid had started kind of downward like it was st- started dying down so i remember it was a period of time where it was about going out and introducing myself and saying this is who i am this is what I direct. And is there an opportunity for me to work with you and work with your theatre company? So, yeah, it was a bit tricky. As I said, I only started working. We started talking about this at the beginning, but I only got my first job after graduating in February. So, yeah. And there were points within those months where you start to question what you're doing and why you're doing it and if you're doing the right thing. It's hard, but, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard. And it, it's you'll probably hear a number of people on a number of podcasts where they keep saying you have to remain positive. Yeah, ultimately, it is. It is. You have to. And it's not about remaining positive and just saying it. It's about finding your own way of remaining positive. So what helps you remain positive? What is something, so for example, something which which helps me in my day-to-day routine is I love cooking. So in the evening, cooking for me is something where it gives me a chance to just relax and unwind. Mm. And, and it makes me feel quite positive when I'm quite happy with what I've prepared. So it is about, but I do encourage people to just find their own way of remaining positive, whether it's something really small, even getting up in the morning and doing something is is a, is a win. It doesn't have to be painting a whole picture. All it has to be is preparing the brushes and opening the paints. And if that's what makes you feel positive and that's going to give you kind of more of the energy to keep on going, then that's what needs to happen. Yeah. Well, I was going to follow that up when you first mentioned how people say you need to be positive. I was going to say, what do you do to be positive? But you'd answered it for me perfectly, which is lovely. But it's so true. And like, I've been mentoring a few people that have just graduated from Screen Academy Scotland recently because I did it obviously two years ago and I'm working a bit in TV now. So I have a bit of knowledge and I'd, I'd love to share it as I do with this podcast. It's, you know, this podcast is a resource and it's meant to help people in the, the industry yeah. that are like, you know, so it's great that someone like yourself sharing your experience. But I was sort of saying to them, like, you have to just keep going. And, you know, because it took me nearly a year to get to the job I'm in now. And I was getting a bit of work, but like not in what I wanted to exactly do. And it's hard. Like you have days where you're like, oh, my God, why am I doing this? This is pointless. And I kept trying to say that to them. It's like you just have to find your own ways of coping. And there's no right way. And there's no right path either. There's no right path. Absolutely. And within the creative industries, uh, I was on a, I, I was in a workshop during COVID. Uh, so it was it was an online workshop with the, the award-winning director, Rebecca Fracknell. And Rebecca said something within that workshop. She said, ultimately, right now, what's most important kind of within, while people are in quarantine, what's most important is that we keep our minds working that it, because that's, that's a muscle as well. So that was something which really stuck with me, the idea that even when I wasn't in a rehearsal room, I still needed to keep my mind going and keep my mind kind of 
it's like a, it's like when you train for a, a, a you know a, a marathon so you need to keep your mind as a muscle so you sit down you read the script how would you look at that? How would you stage it? What would you do with this? Who would you cast? So these were things that when I wasn't in a rehearsal room, it, they really kept me driven and eager. And yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. Trying to, there's so much I want to ask you. And obviously there's not enough time in the world, but like, <laughs> Just quickly, I wanted to, I guess, I'll ask you about the book festival, which you're artistic director. How, talk about that. That's that, that's quite an amazing thing to be working on, especially like only a year after your debut, like directing a play at the Edinburgh Fringe, like a year later coming back and doing the book festival during August in Edinburgh. That must have been like a bit of a dream come true almost in a way. Absolutely. It was absolutely a dream come true. It was quite a, quite a big task because the project Scotland Through Time, that took three books and adapted them into performances. So when I came on board to on on board the project i i started speaking to the to the authors and i i started to understand what project they had started already speaking to a couple of people so i wanted to understand what was the identity and the structure that this each of the three performances could have so sometimes it felt like as an artistic director uh, i was also the the curator of the projects so i remember with one particular book which was we were taking chitra ramaswamy's book homelands and we were turning it into a performance Chitra had started having conversations with Catherine Joseph. And when we started looking at the project, I remember speaking with Chitra and I said, if we can get Catherine Joseph, then let's get Catherine Joseph on stage for the performance. And then we spoke to Hannah Lavery, who came on as the director of the piece. So it was great. It felt different. It was the first time that I was within an artistic director role. But it felt, it felt wonderful to be able to take Catherine Joseph Chitra Ramaswamy's book and Anna Lavery and you put all three together and you know it was quite wonderful attaching people and giving identity to to a performance and lots of people asked me but why aren't you directing one of them and I remember thinking because it was quite a big a big job that I said the best thing that I can do is kind of remain as a, an artistic director and overlook the, the development of the project. So yeah, that was that was quite a cool job to do. Yeah, no, that's clear. And then for, obviously from there, you went on to do the play Pine of Pine stuff as well. So so it was that was straight after. So <laughs> No rest for the wicked, eh? No rest for the wicked. So it literally went the impromptu at Oromore. It's an adaptation of a, of a Moliere play called The Impromptu at Versailles. And it was about Moliere, a director who he needs to stage a play for a VIP in 45 minutes. I describe it as if Moliere wrote the play that goes wrong. So it's that kind of style, quick pace, lots of things happening and, you know, things are changing. The actors come in, the actors are unhappy, the actors leave. He's kind of left alone and then they come back. So it's lots, it's lots of ins and outs. And the way we set it in Oramore was that we usually in Oramore there's work on stage, mm-hmm. but we used on stage, but we also used the, the middle aisle of the space. So the actors were closer to the audience and it, we used the entrances and exits of the actual space. So it felt very immersive to Oramore. 
Yeah. Sort of going back to that community thing you spoke about at the start and trying to link it to Malta, right? And having that sort of make everyone feel part of it, I imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it felt like, it felt like, you know, although, although COVID is still there, but has subdued enough that we can continue with our everyday life. Mm. It, to me, it feels, it still feels like when I go to the theater, it's still a really nice feeling to see so many people coming together in the same room to watch a story on, on stage. Incredible. So, so with impromptu, it was, you know, when you're sitting in, um, we set it up in traverse, so we had chairs on either side. So when you are able to see the audience in front of you, so you are able to see the other audience member, and it does continue this feeling of community that we're all coming together within this room to watch this play. Yeah, and I've, I think we'd all missed that. I think we have all yeah. missed that over the last few years, of course. So must yeah. it's almost must feel like a bit of a, a celebratory feeling for you and getting to be back doing what you love, etc., as well. Yeah, it was a bit tricky because we lost two actors to COVID. Oh. Like in 48 hours, we lost, um, there were two actors who were unfortunately got COVID and we cancelled the Monday show. But then luckily by Thursday, we were full cast. On Tuesday, I ended up going on stage, which was not not planned. Oh my. Using your old yeah. experiences. Yeah. But I hadn't, the thing was, I hadn't set foot on stage in four years. Wow. So I was a bit like, oh my God, this is happening. But because how the play was, because it was so fast, because it, it relied on a lot of things, to me and the artistic director, Jemima Levick, it felt like the best way that I would be on stage for the first show and then the understudy would be on to the second show. Yeah. Just to buy him time to really see what what's happening and how it's happening. But what's so yeah. amazing about Play Pine and because I've been to quite a few of them in the past, often if there's someone sick in the cast or somebody can't make it, it's quite supportive because they'll say at the start, unfortunately, you know, this person's ill and this director's going to be doing an open book performance. So, and, and everyone, no one cares. You, even, you kind of forget. You just go, yeah, it's fine. Of course. Absolutely. You almost support Absolutely. them. You're like, they're probably more nervous, you know, it's worse for them. So yeah, I, I think I think it works well in that space. It's a really supportive audience. It's yeah. such a supportive audience. You feel like they're on your side and they're supporting you. And ultimately, you know, it is about them enjoying the performance and seeing it. So yeah, I didn't feel uh, while I was on stage, I was actually feeling quite... Uh, it's, it's till you get through the first four or five lines. And then there was a moment where the lights came up, the music stopped and the scene starts with the main actor with... Uh, on the phone and I remember I started with the phone and then I, I had the script in my hand and I didn't say anything for a bit and I just for a moment I was like okay lips start moving like start saying something anything so yeah it, it was it was quite an experience that's probably one that I I I won't forget. Yeah. Well, this has been a really enjoyable chat. I've still got a few more questions. I've only been speaking for an hour, but I'm going to have to sadly rattle through some of the ones that I would obviously like more time. But it's been great chatting to you, honestly. Really interested to talk to you because you're a director and I don't have enough directors on the podcast, to be honest. But Mm. do you have a philosophy as a director? Do you have like a sort of philosophy or or do you have a method that you think is quite unique to you, apart from the Play-Doh, of course? I don't know. What's your sort of process as a director, especially in like a theatre space? My process as a director, so I always believe, I think I mentioned at the beginning, I always try to direct the way I used to enjoy being directed as an actor. And what I mean by that, that's a, I don't like to call it a method, but that's a focus on experimentation 
and playfulness and risk-taking within the room. So it's about, uh, I like being quite playful in the room where we, we're able to look at scenes and really see, okay, how can we stage this? And I like to, I like to see different versions of scenes but I'm very open in the room. So if someone, to me, it's not about my ideas or the actor's ideas. To me, what's most important is that we're doing this, we're all doing this for the play and for the play to land in the best way possible. So it doesn't make a difference to me if the idea came from me or from the actor or from anyone. To me, if it's the best idea that's going to serve the play in the best way, then that's the one we're, we're going to, to follow and try out and see if it works, see if it doesn't. But yeah, to me, that's where I, I, like, to, I like to have kind of this give people space to explore and give people space to find their own authentic version of the character or of the sound design or of the set design. So, yeah, I like when people feel quite that they have ownership over the characters, over what they're doing. That's the way that I, I like to direct and using the text as the foundation. So to me, it's about, about breaking down the text as much as possible and taking as much truth from it, the facts we call it, sometimes we call it data mining, the text. And then that data and that information will give you a strong foundation to then be able to make decisions that are accurate and decisions that are the best for the performance. Mm. It's really lovely to chat to someone like yourself that works in, as a director of theatre because obviously I work in slightly, obviously screen is different to theatre. It's totally, it's, mm. it's similar but different but what's so similar about them both and I think all the arts is collaboration and how important everyone's role is, isn't it? And I love the way that you're talking yeah. about it. you like to give the actors and the other and the sound designers, everyone has to feel a bit of ownership because it's everyone is as important as each other and it wouldn't work without everyone, isn't it? And you know, there's Absolutely. too many, I think there's too many people that have egos sometimes and don't realise that and I think to do your job well you have to know that and it's, it's lovely to yeah. hear you talk about it and sometimes so in germany actors aren't uh, the translation isn't actors the the translation is players so it's a reminder that we mm. we come into a rehearsal room to play and it's that playfulness and that fun aspect yeah. that sometimes sometimes we might not give as much priority to so I try as much as possible to to keep that in the center of my thought process. The idea that we are coming in to prepare a play. So let's have fun. Let's enjoy the process. Yeah, no, I love that. I think it's so important. On that note, I, I mean, one of the mm. questions I sent you, but like, what do you think are the sort of, what are free skills in particular that you think somebody who wants to be a director might need to have or that you think are really important to be a, a director in theatre? So... I, I had a bit of a think about it. So the three, I think the three essential skills is flexibility and adaptability. That would be the first one. 100%, uh, which we touched on earlier as well, of course. Which we touched on earlier, mm. because that's quite, that's quite important. And, you know, particularly when people speak about killing your darlings. So you have to be flexible enough to realise when to say, actually, this idea doesn't work. That idea is better. Let's go with that. So you have to be, you, you can't be precious of ideas. Yeah. I think the second one is discipline. I think that's very important. Discipline, not only in terms of time, but also in terms of respect mm. and, and value of people and what they're bringing, what they're bringing and what they're doing. 
And I think as a last one, I think these three, I don't think the first, second or third, I don't think there's a, a hierarchy. Yeah, just all, all, use- yeah, yeah. all useful. Of course. But I think the last one is openness. Mm. I think openness is very important, openness and honesty and just being very clear with people and saying there were times where, you know, as a director, there's sometimes there's a misconception that we we know everything. We know exactly what, what what's happening. But there are, you know, that's not the way that I see directing. I'm discovering the play as much as the actors are discovering the play at the same time. We're just on this process together. So having that openness I think it's very important to just say, oh, actually, I might have misdirected this scene. Could we try it in a different way? Mm. And it's that openness and honesty with actors that's very important within a rehearsal room. But also it's openness in terms of making it very clear when we're going to take a break or setting expectations for people. Yeah. So, yes. I think those are those are my three essential skills. Oh, that's a great answer. You've been so good at answering these questions today, brother. I love the detail. You're, you're you're approaching it like a director. You're breaking it down, and you've been so thorough. And I love it. We don't always get this. It's, you're making my I job so notes. much easier. I made notes before oh we started. I feel like I'd not have had to ask any follow-up questions because I often will chat to people and they'll say something and I go, so, and you know, you have to look for these little, but I don't have to, I'm not yeah, having to do yeah. that at all. You're, you're, you're so thorough, it's, it's lovely. I'm a bit of a chatterbox though, <laughs> Jamie. So you'd, you're you're more likely to have to slow me down and say, <laughs> okay, stop. Makes my job um, easier. It's much better than speaking to somebody that's, you know, says nothing. Then You know, no one, they're not here to hear me. Do you know what I mean? Just get a real job. Well, I've got two more questions, and thank you for your patience. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Well, of course, the name of the podcast is Just Get A Real Job. We'd all had to work jobs in our time that we maybe didn't want to work or that weren't fun or, you know, we're a bit, you know, getting in the way of our our dreams and et cetera. But is there a job you did to work, part-time job or a, a, quote, real job that you maybe hated or that was a laugh or that you remember particularly? There was one job where it was the summer where I was going up to the Edinburgh Fringe and I was changing between an undergrad degree. So I realised that I I would need to go out and, and work to be able to have enough funds to support me while I'm in Edinburgh. And I got a job in a cafe where... I went in thinking I was going to be a waiter because I had I had had experience waiting tables, but they wanted me to prepare food. So it was like a bit of a it wasn't a chef, but it was it was like I needed to prepare dishes and prepare kind of work the microwaves and work the deep fryer and work the the ovens so and then afterwards you'll have to load the plates the plates washer and then unload the plates stack the plates so that was a bit of a job that I knew I needed to do because I needed I needed to be supported but yeah it was it it was a bit of a and to make matters worse that job was right in the middle of I think it must have been a world cup or a or a euro and I remember particularly asking the manager to be let off one day because there was a particular game and all I asked was like to be let off 10 minutes early so I could get the game from the very beginning and he didn't let me he actually said no you have to stay on late and and do dishes and everything and I remember I went back into the kitchen and I was doing the dishes and the <laughs> the dishes needed to be stacked up. And I remember um, there was a bit of a frying pan incident where I was stacking things and I must have either dislodged the frying pan or something and this came like hurtling down. 
and it, <laughs> I had a bit of a moment where I was struck by this frying pan and suddenly he said, okay, actually, so why don't we just leave it here and you can head, you can head off now. And I'm not sure if the the frying pan was trying to get me home on time to watch the match. I was absolutely fine, but yes, that was that was a bit of a <laughs> was a bit of an odd odd yeah. job. Do you remember what the match what match it was or what cup it was? That curiosity. Can't remember. It must have been, I think, a Euro 2015. 2016, maybe 2016 Euros. Euro. Was it the Euro? Yeah, it's every, it's every, it's every equal year, yes. isn't it? Yeah. It must have been... Portugal won it that year, didn't they? Yeah. We're going back a into, while. Was it the World Cup in 2015? 2014 yeah. no. it would have been the World no. Cup. No. Yeah. So you're right. So it would be. It would have been the Euro in 2016. What match was it? That was <laughs> I mean, tricky the, one. I'm just, it's just for me, really. I'm just curious. That was a tricky <laughs> one. I am an, an Italy Italy fan. So it must have been... I don't know. Maybe... Well, it's fine. No, that's interesting. Well, it's are very popular in Scotland after the favour they did us last year at the Euros. They yes, got, absolutely. A ma- a massive favour, so we're, we're forever grateful in Scotland massive for that. Massive favour. Crisis averted there. <laughs> well, I've got one more question for you, Andre. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on, but like, Same I'd, like, I'd like to round off the podcast by asking just if you were to give advice to someone who was maybe a young up-and-coming director, somebody who maybe was like hadn't even directed anything in their life and, and wanted to know what they'd need to do, like what would your advice be to them? So so there's a podcast that I listen to, which is Jamila Jamil's podcast. And Jamila Jamil had Billy Porter on her podcast. And I remember she, she's got loads of episodes. But my girlfriend told me, you need to listen to the Billy Porter episode. And I remember I sat down and I listened to Billy Porter. And he said something which really resonated with me. He said that he had a period of time where he was not getting work and he was not getting jobs. And he was just like, the the best advice that I can give people, this is Billy. He said, the best advice I can give people is be ready. As much as possible, you have to be ready. Because when the opportunity shows up, you need to take your shot. So you have to be ready. When you get a chance, you really take it. That really, really resonated with me Mm. because I was like, within this sector, sometimes you go through times where you might not be doing as much, but you still have to be ready because things change quickly. So I think that's, it feels like when you, when you ask that question, three things came to mind. So the Billy Porter, the be ready, that's really important. I think the second one is, there's an Italian word, which, which I also said at the beginning when I said my, uh, when you asked me about my favorite word, it's also, we use it in Maltese as well. But there's an Italian word called grinta. And grinta is to like have, be determined, be driven. And, I think within this sector, you need, you need a lot of grinta. You need to, a lot of, you need to be driven. You need to know, you need to be determined to, you need to want it. Mm. Um, and it's not about, it's not about just wanting it, but it's that drive. Yeah. And it's, it's tough. It's tough to sustain that drive and keep that drive going. But it, it, I think it, in my head, it links really well with what Billy Porter said, where you need right. to be driven enough that when the opportunity shows up, you're ready to really go for it. And then as a final one, this is something that, that I think is, is very important, is just when, 
when you're out there, when you're meeting people, when you're meeting artistic directors, when you're meeting theatres, when you're meeting actors, I think what's most important is just be honest and just be yourself. People want to work with people they feel easy to work with and easy to speak to. So I think to me, what's important is to be honest and just be yourself. Just believe in what you're saying and why you're saying it. I think that's that's my that would be my recommendation. Yeah. Wow. Another really, really thorough answer there. Thank you so much, Andrew. Honestly, it's been lovely. Great advice. Great advice. We're bringing all that lovely European wisdom to the podcast and we appreciate We appreciate it. What look at the Mediterranean Sea can do to, for people's souls. You know what I mean? It's lovely. You'd think, you'd think so. But, you know, every time I'm in Malta, everyone's like, do you tan? Do you go to the beach? Because even in summer, I've got quite a fair complexion. That uh, I'll get sunburnt. And then I'll I'll peel, and then I'll be white underneath again. Well, so, yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good for living in Scotland, though. You're gonna. Yeah, <laughs> I love. I prefer. I prefer. I much prefer the weather here. Yeah, much prefer. Well, it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been <laughs> such a pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, there you go. That was episode ninety-seven of Just Get a Real Job. Thank you again to Andre for coming on and speaking to us. I love this conversation. I love the sound of his voice. What he had to say was brilliant. It was a really lovely chat. And I hope you found it as inspiring and as insightful as I did. As always, if you're listening for the first time, we have 96 other episodes for you to enjoy. Please delve into the back catalogs. Some great conversations we've had over the last two years. Some really amazing, talented, creative people. Lots of things to learn. Lots of nuggets of information. And lots of entertaining conversation. As always as well, you can listen to us wherever you get podcasts, including on Apple and Spotify. Please leave us a review wherever you're listening to this. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. We also have a Patreon page. I'm aware we're in a massive cost of living crisis. Don't worry about that if you haven't, don't have the money. If you do have a few quid to spare and you're one of those few people that does at the moment and you want to give back to this podcast, please consider donating. All the money we make goes back into making this the best it can be. We make a loss in this podcast. We make it because we love it. But anyway, that's all we have time for this week. I'm not sure when the next episode will be out. Hopefully there'll be a few before the end of the year. I imagine there will be, but for the next few weeks anyway, enjoy yourselves. Take it easy out there and be sure to spread the word about Just Get A Real Job. Have a good one, folks. Just get a real job